You're listening to the Word of Hope, sermons preached at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Today's sermon is preached by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, it is amazing to me that Jesus calls any disciples at all. It seems like it would have been a lot easier without them. I mean, think of all the trouble that the disciples gave to Jesus, how often they disappoint him. It's almost a refrain in the Gospels, O ye of little faith. Remember, for example, how Jesus, how Peter stands in front of Jesus and rebukes Jesus for talking about his death. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus has to say to Peter. Or, or remember how the disciples were trying to rescue a man from the demons, but they couldn't. And Jesus shakes his head and says, this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. Or, or how many of the passages in the Gospels begin with something like this? The disciples were arguing amongst themselves about which of them was the greatest. Well, remember how they fell asleep in the garden when Jesus asked them to, to stay awake and to pray. Remember how they all ran when Jesus was arrested. Remember how it was Judas, one of the disciples, who betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Or remember how it was with all these disciples on Easter, locked up in the room, afraid, confused, doubting, mixed with faith. I mean, how much of a hassle was it for Jesus to have disciples. And Jesus didn't need them. But he could handle it on his own, that's for sure. Jesus doesn't need Peter or James or John or Andrew or Thomas or Judas. He doesn't need all the trouble. But I I suppose you could say that just about everything that Jesus does. Everything that he did. He He doesn't need to be born in a manger. He doesn't need to stay up all through the night healing people. He doesn't need to feed the feet the 5,000. In fact, he definitely doesn't need to be arrested and mocked and beaten and abused and stripped and crucified. Of all people, Jesus alone didn't need to die. It wasn't necessary. It was not required of him like it is of you and of me who are appointed once to die and then to be judged. Not so with Jesus. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is holy, alone is holy. Jesus is very God of very God. He's immortal. He has all power, which is to say, at least when it comes to the disciples, Jesus didn't need their help. But this morning we find Jesus standing there in Peter's boat, calling him to be a disciple. Fear not, he says. From henceforth you shall catch men. Now, the the scene is an astonishing one. Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee called Lake Gennesaret in the text, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear him teach. So seeing two empty boats, he gets in one, Simon, whose name is also Peter, and has Peter push off the the shore a little bit so that Jesus can sit in the boat and and teach the people and they can see him and they can hear him. So he teaches for a little while, and then when the sermon is over, he looks over at Peter and he says, Go out into the deep water and throw out your net for a catch of fish. Now those, the people who know about these things, about the ancient fishing techniques in the Sea of Galilee, which I admit I am not an expert, but there are people who presumably are experts and they like to point out how what Jesus says is totally wrong. Number one, you don't fish in the middle of the day. Number two, you don't fish in the deep water, but in the shallows. 
And number three, if you fished all night and not caught any fish, you're certainly not going to catch any now. So Peter probably could have said something like, hey, buddy, I'll let you take care of the preaching and let me take care of the fishing. But he doesn't. Peter says, Master, we've toiled all night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, at your word, I will let down the net. So Peter hears and keeps the words of Jesus. Now, who knows what Peter expected to happen, but he rows out into the deep and he throws out the net. And as he begins to pull in the net, he finds it full of fish so much that the nets start to break. And he calls to his partners in the other boat, James and John, and they come and they, they help him haul in this huge catch of fish. So many fish that, that not only was this Peter's boat filled, but the other boat was filled so full of fish that the boats start to sink. It's like all the fish in the Sea of Galilee want to come and meet Jesus. And to be clear about this, this catch of fish is miraculous. I mean, we know this, at least, from how Peter, James, and John and the other fishermen were astonished. And we know it especially because Peter falls down with fish all around him at the knees of Jesus and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He knows who Jesus is. Now, it's good, it's good for us to pause here and see where we are, better to kind of, to see what Peter sees. He, Peter, at this point, he knows now, having seen this miracle, he knows that Jesus is the Lord, as the miraculous catch of fish demonstrates, and Peter knows something else. Peter knows that he is a sinner, guilty of breaking God's law, and deserving of God's wrath. And Peter knows now that God is right here in his boat, and says, Depart from me, terrified. Now, it's good for us to think just right there about this thing, because there is a difference, I I think, between a troubled sinner and a terrified sinner, or between a troubled conscience and a terrified conscience, and Peter shows us the difference. He has a terrified conscience. Now, think of it this way, at least to get at the difference. We know, just about everybody knows, that people make mistakes, that we've done, we know, we all know that we've done things that are wrong. In fact, we have, so we have cliches that we always use to confess this. We say, nobody's perfect. All the time we say that. Or we say, to err is human. If you, if you think of, if you ask the average person what they think, if they've made a mistake in life, for sure most people would admit it. Sure I have. Or if you ask the average person walking along, if they are perfect, they would say, well, of course I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. We all know that we have done things that are wrong. And this gives us, one way or another, a troubled conscience. Now, Peter, long before Jesus came along, Peter had a troubled conscience because everybody has a troubled conscience. But then when Jesus shows up, something happens right there. God in the flesh, as Peter is knee-deep in miracle fish, something happens. He's terrified. Peter knows that his problem is worse than his sins. Peter knows that the problem, his problem, is the God that he has sinned against. Do you see the difference? And that's the difference between a troubled conscience and a terrified conscience. The same thing happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember how when Adam and Eve had, had eaten from the tree, the forbidden fruit, 
And they realized that they were naked, and so they took fig leaves and they made clothes for themselves. They had a troubled conscience, but they had managed to to appease their troubled conscience, to cover their shame with the fig leaves until they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the to, in the cool of the day. And then they realize, in their troubled conscience, that the fig leaves are not enough, and they are terrified. You see, Adam and Eve, when they heard the footsteps of God, Adam and Eve realized that the problem was worse than their nakedness, that their problem was worse than their sin, that their problem was the God that they had sinned against. And this is the difference between a troubled conscience and a terrified conscience. A troubled conscience knows that it's done something wrong. A terrified conscience knows that God has been wronged and that He is angry. A troubled conscience sees the problem as our own mistakes. And a troubled conscience is then tempted to think that the solution is fixing what we've done wrong, making up for it, making amends, doing enough good works to balance out the scales or something like this. But a terrified conscience knows that it is God who has been wronged, that He is angry with our sin, that God Himself is the problem. And if God is the problem, then God will be the only one with the solution. Remember how King David prayed in Psalm 51. These words are astonishing to us. King David says, and this is after he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba and sent Uriah, her husband, off to be murdered at the hands of Joab, his commander. King David prays, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, O Lord. Now, we, we hear that and we think, David, what are you talking about? You sinned against Bathsheba, you sinned against Uriah, you sinned against Joab and the entire army, you sinned against your family, you sinned against all the people of Israel. There's basically nobody that you haven't sinned against. And here you say that you've sinned only against God. Now, it's true that David sinned against all the people, but a terrified conscience recognizes this as the chief and main thing, that we have sinned against God, that that is what matters that God Himself is offended by our sin, that God Himself is rightly angry at our sin, and that God's wrath itself is our problem. Now we say this when we confess our sins together. I, a poor miserable sinner, confess unto Thee all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended Thee and justly deserve Thy temporal and eternal punishment. This is the confession of a terrorized, terrified conscience. And this is what's happening with Peter when he says in the boat to Jesus, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. But Jesus doesn't answer Peter's prayer. At least, he doesn't do what Peter asks. He doesn't leave. He doesn't depart. But Jesus does send away the thing that was causing Peter's terror. He forgives Peter his sins all in one little sentence. Don't be afraid. He says, in that little sentence, Jesus gives to Peter all the gifts of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, life, salvation, eternal life, the promise of the resurrection, the kingdom of heaven, the Holy Spirit, the gift of the glorious inheritance of the children of light. Those words that Jesus speaks to Peter in the boat, do not be afraid. Those words make Peter a Christian. And they do the same for us, for you and for me. Christ died for you. Do not be afraid. 
Your sins are forgiven. Do not be afraid. The grave is empty. Do not be afraid. You are baptized. The devil is defeated. The body and blood is here. Do not be afraid. Those words, do not be afraid, are the absolution. The preaching of the gospel, the opening up of of heaven itself and everlasting life, those words that Jesus gives to Peter casts away all fear and says that your God who you have sinned against is not going to destroy you. I'm not standing here in front of you to cast you into the depths of the sea. I am not here to punish you, to visit your iniquity, to, to execute wrath. But I have come, says Jesus, to Peter and to you, I have come to suffer that wrath in your place so that you won't have to suffer it. I mean, we are rightly to be terrified by God. But then look what God does. He sends His Son into our flesh to bear our sins to suffer on the cross for us so that the wrath that is that ought to be aimed at you is instead aimed at Him. That's what the cross is about. So that Jesus can come and say to you and to me, this God of whom you are terrified is not a terror. The God of whom you are afraid says to you, fear not. I'm nothing to be afraid of. I love you. I've died for you. My blood cleanses you of all of your sins. There is nothing to be afraid of in life or in death, in sickness or in health, in riches or in poverty. There's nothing at all to be afraid of. All of the wrath Jesus has taken for us, for Peter, for James, for John, for you and for me. Don't be afraid. You see, it's all there in those words. And then, and then Jesus does something more. Not only does Jesus absolve Peter and make him a Christian, he then calls Peter to be a disciple and apostle and a pastor in his church. From henceforth, Jesus says to Peter, you shall catch men. So he calls Peter away. You know, this is probably if ever Peter had any doubt about being a fisherman and if he had chosen the right career, the the uh, and, and he had wondered if he had done the right thing in life, as soon as he hauls in a boat full of fish, he says, I'm doing the right thing. <laughs> so Jesus convinces Peter that he pri- precisely at that point should be a fisherman, and then he calls Peter away from the boats and the nets to take up the pulpit and the altar. Instead, do you see what? Instead of Jesus leaving Peter like Peter had prayed, depart from me, O Lord, instead of Jesus leaving Peter, Jesus leaves and takes Peter with him. It's beautiful. Now, it's important in this point to make a a distinction because a lot of times when we hear the text preached that we all are Peter and we all are being called to leave our nets and go and make disciples of men. There's a distinction to be made. When Jesus says the words, do not be afraid, he is aiming at every single person. Jesus is calling all people to be Christians. But there are very few who the words, you shall catch men, are for. Those words are for the pastors. And maybe those words are for those of you who are thinking about going to seminary. You know who you are. (laughs) Every person alive is called to believe in Christ, but there are very few who are called to put away their nets, change their vocations, and become preachers in the church. And this takes us around to the beginning. 
Remember how we were talking about how Jesus didn't need Peter to be his disciples? He didn't need James or John. Jesus doesn't need me. He doesn't need the pastors that have stood in this pulpit. He doesn't need the pastors that have baptized you and taught you God's word and brought you to the Lord's altar. Jesus can cause his kingdom to come all on its own. But in mercy, he calls Peter to be an apostle. And he gives Peter as a gift to the church. In mercy, Jesus called John and gave him to the church. And we rejoice in their benefits. We heard the preaching of Peter and the preaching of John today in the readings. In his mercy, Jesus calls Moses and Isaiah and David and Jeremiah and James and Paul all to be pastors in his church and preachers of his word. And through them, Jesus gives to us the greatest riches of all, his word and his promises and all the treasures of the gospel. Jesus didn't need them. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. But as an astonishing act of grace, Jesus, in his wisdom, has chosen to give sinners through the foolishness of the word preached salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And all of this is for you and me. So that we would know that when we hear the voice of the preacher, when we listen to the words of the prophets and the apostles, that we are hearing the voice of Jesus. And we are hearing his kindness and his love and his promises. That we are hearing his forgiveness. And that it stands and that it's true. And believing it, we have life in his name. Jesus didn't need to do any of these things. But he loves you. And he's died for you. And he has called you. And enlightened you. And given you the sure promises of eternal life. Amen. The peace of God that passes all understanding. Guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope. We hope your time with us was one of joy and peace in hearing the Lord's Word and kindness. If you have questions about anything you heard on today's broadcast, please don't hesitate to contact us at office at hope-aurora.org or call the office at 303-364-7416. For more information about our congregation, for locations, service time, and schedule, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope.